Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, good morning. I am Carmen LaBerge. If you are listening to Mornings with Carmen for the very first time, welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, and if this isn't your first time, hey, welcome back. So glad to be with you this morning. Let me start with this. Um, if you needed a heart transplant, which this is, that's a serious question, right? I mean, that's a, if you needed a heart transplant, something's gone desperately wrong um, in your body. So if you needed a heart transplant, how far would you go to get one? We've had this conversation before where, you know, when, when I'm asked to pray, um, you know, for somebody who needs a transplant of any kind, um, I, I take pause because I know that in asking that God would provide a way for this newborn baby or this beloved child or this spouse, this friend, this co-worker, this colleague, uh, this parent, this brother, this sister, this neighbor, that this person would receive a transplant, I know that I am also praying um, in a way that means another family is going to lose a healthy member of their family because that's where transplant organs come from. So it's always given me pause. It's always given me pause. And I have people in my family um, on both sides of that conversation. My cousin, uh, Charlene, when her 12-year-old son was um, struck by a motorcycle uh, in front of their house, he was not going to live. You know, they had to make that very, very difficult decision to allow his organs to be harvested that others might live even though he was going to die. And Colin, in that way, you know, parts of him live on in others, but um, that's a huge decision for, uh, for Charlene and Mike to make <clears throat> under very horrible, desperate circumstances. And then fast forward years later, um, Charlene's sister Betty needed a heart transplant. And because some other family made the same decision that in years prior their family had made, you know, Betty now has a new heart. I mean, I have a cousin who has a transplanted heart. So I want to ask again, if you needed a heart transplant, how far would you go to get one? This conversation has radically changed just in the last few days. Because for the very first time, anywhere in the world, uh, in the state of Maryland, doctors transplanted a genetically modified heart into a human patient. Now, what I resisted telling you in there is that that heart is not fully human. So it is a genetically modified pig's heart, and it has now been successfully transplanted into a human patient. His name is David Bennett. He's 57 years old. 
Um, he had run out of options, and he was not a candidate for um, for a living organ transplant. So he was not even on the list. He couldn't, for whatever reason, I don't know all the details related to that, um, related to his particular medical situation, but he was not a candidate to receive a human transplanted heart. And so this option was opened up. Um, We apparently now, through CRISPR technology, are able to genetically modify these organs And they are pig organs, but they are also partly human because the genes have been modified to turn off parts of the um, pig DNA and turn on or input some component parts of human DNA. And all of that is about making the organ uh, more acceptable, uh, less prone to rejection by the human body, and also one that keeps the heart from continuing to grow because obviously you want it to remain the size that is going to uh, work for the human. All right, all of this is to say we have lots of conversations as Christians that we must be having in the area of medical ethics, and most of us are not having them, and we need to be having them. Um, would you accept, would you seek an organ to be transplanted into your body that was genetically modified through a technique that you know You know, we know that CRISPR technology uses aborted fetuses. So when we talk about the technology, the medical technology that's now available in terms of uh, transplanted organs, we are talking about a technology that is developed on CRISPR, and CRISPR technology is absolutely a medical technology developed using aborted fetuses. So for all the conversations that we've had about vaccines and how they're developed and whether or not um, we, we think it's right or righteous to use vaccines developed in that way, Here's another conversation in the headlines related to medical technology and and medical progress that's going to now be widely used. I'm telling you, this is going to be widely used. Um, And although uh, animal rights activists are going to um, certainly be stomping their feet about this, um, the questions that we as Christians need to be asking um, are, are deeper still. And I'm not saying that uh, I'm offering an answer to this question because I'll go back to the question itself. What if you needed a heart transplant or your child or your dad or your sister or your best friend? Yeah, those are the kinds of questions facing us as Christians today. And we're going to continue to work through them together here on Mornings with Carmen. Uh, In the midst of this uh, global pandemic, the poorest of the poor have suffered the most Um, What's on your table? How did it get there? When we talk about scarcity on the grocery shelves here in America, it's a way different situation around the world. We're going to talk with Jeff Bilbro next. Uh, We're going to think about what we're eating and what's eating us. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, Jeff Bilbro is back. He is a professor at Grove City College. He is also the host of a website called FrontPorchRepublic.com. There he posts something called The Water Dipper. We're going to read from that today. You can find him at JeffBilbro.com. Jeff, welcome back. Happy New Year. Good morning, Carmen. Happy New Year to you. All right, so um, what did you have for dinner last night, and where did it come from? 
Oh man, it's a long story. <laughs> well, our house, we're having our floors re restained, so our house smells to high heaven. So we were going to cook mm. at home, and we did not. Huh. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. Um, yeah, I don't wonder why you didn't cook at home because everything would taste like that. By the way, if yeah. it smells like that, it would taste like that, and that would be terrible. All right, so um, we are going to visit um, on this topic of food systems and what we have learned about. Um, the food system here in the United States, um, and we know that that's a global system now. Uh, t tell me why we're tell tell everybody why we're talking about this today. Yeah, I think a lot of folks over the last few years have been realizing that our food system, especially since the pandemic, have been realizing that our food systems are uh, far extending and vulnerable, and maybe in some ways, um, you know, there's there's. Uh, injustice baked in in terms of the way the animals and people are treated and so there's a I, I have optimism that there's a growing will to rethink what a more just and healthy food system and resilient food system might look like all right so give us some insight into that give us a window into what a yeah. more just system might look like yeah, so one of the people I really respect who's thinking about these issues is Austin Frerich, and he um, is in the middle of a uh, research project on grocery stores, which might sound kind of boring, but um, thinking about what what the supply chains to grocery stores look like and how so much uh, of those are, are oriented toward what's good for the producers and helping them, uh, you know, make that easy and profitable, but it also can um, be driven by corporate profits rather than health or justice or safety considerations. So um, he is trying to think through with uh, other academics, also with the FTC, um, how we might kind of break up some of these monopolies and uh, re reinstate more local and diversified um, supply chains to different grocery stores. So I think it's very promising. Yeah, I do too. I really appreciated it. So again, if you guys want to read more about that, you can um, you can go to frontporchrepublic.com. You can find the Water Dipper. Um, and in there, you can find Taking Stock and Looking Forward Food System Overhaul. Um, I also found the, um, the post there about John Deere unveiling <laughs> automated tractors. Um, super interesting because I, I am the person who loves to bush hog. I love to till the garden. Um, and so, you know, that means I am a John Deere person. Um, you know, we have an old green John Deere tractor that I, I, about which I am deeply affectionate, um, which I know sounds a little crazy, but my guess is people who are listening right now are nodding their heads up and down if they, um, know that nothing runs like a deer. So tell us what is um, what's going on with this, and sort of the sort of the up and the downside related to the automation of tractors? Yeah, tractors today are not your grandfather's tractor anymore. Uh, they're not the the sort of small thing that you might be nostalgic about. And uh, for a long time, uh, John Deere tractors and others have become integrated with GPS and other technologies, and so the driver has less and less responsibility less to less do they like watch yeah. shows in there yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. you can watch TV somebody's listening right now somebody is listening right now from the cab of a giant tractor that's basically <laughs> running itself yeah that's happening and i get you know if when when uh you have less access to labor and people have to own more and more property or farm more and more property to make make a profit on smaller and smaller margins 
you know, we get why this happens. But um, John Deere has now taken this to the logical ex extreme, which is a totally automated tractor that you can, I guess, just set up and, and will run itself. And it will, you know, plant according to your preset program or, or fertilize according to uh, the inputs you've given it. And, you know, at, at some point, hopefully we recognize the absurdity <clears throat> of where this is going and uh, in reverse course. And I think it's actually interesting that in recent years, 1980s John Deere's have become hot commodities on the used tractor market because those were some of the last tractors that were easier to repair, uh, didn't have a lot of expensive <laughs> You're talking equipment. about my tractor. Now yeah. you're talking about my tractor. Yeah. yeah. So my our tractor has been rebuilt um, three times that I'm aware of. Um, once after the 2010 flood here in Nashville, oh, where yeah. it sat for a week, it sat for a week under like 12 feet of water. And it, let me just tell you, it just took, they just took it apart. They just dried it out. They put in some new spark plugs and that puppy fired right back up. It's amazing. It's amazing. It really I, is. I, I'm just telling you. Yeah, there you go. Not that and, I'm, and, you know. You know, some of the older ones are built like that. And the newer ones now are so computer, computerized and automated that they don't have that durability or, or flexibility. Ah, there you go. There you go. All right. So um, I, this is, it seems like the farm report, which seems like the wrong day because normally we do the farm report on Friday. So thank you, um, Jeff, for indulging me this morning. When we, come, when we come back, will you tell us what's going on with J.D. Vance? I think there's probably a lot of people listening who um, know or think of him related to Hillbilly Elegy. Um, but he has taken on a political um, uh, persona that is really pretty interesting. Can we talk about that? Yeah. All right. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Here's to the farmer that plants the fields in the spring that turn from green to that harvest honey. Yeah, I'm already thinking about the spring. I know that um, many, many, uh, many, many of you are totally buried in snow right now, but um, there's hope ahead. It will fall. All right. Um, let's talk about the radical radicalization of J.D. Vance. Um, we are talking this morning with Jeff Bilbro from Grove City College. Um, we're talking about a piece in the Water Dipper, which you can find at FrontPorchRepublic.com. Jeff, um, remind people, who is J.D. Vance? And when we talk about his radicalization, like what are what are some points along the way that we could identify? Yeah, a lot of people are talking about his uh, Senate primary run and kind of how he has reshaped his um, stance, I guess, and his posture since writing Hillbilly Elegy, which came out, I think, in 2016. Um, and very popular book, and I would recommend it. I think it's a good book. Um, it kind of got billed, I guess, as a expose or a, a sort of anthropology of Trump voters. I'm not sure that's the best way of reading it, but it is a really moving, I think, memoir of growing up in rural Ohio and uh, his experience going going into the Marines and, and then going to elite law school and kind of navigating those cultural tensions and uh, examining the, the ways that his own upbringing was dysfunctional, but also some of the dysfunctions of, you know, quote unquote, elite uh, lawyer academia. So he's a really fascinating thinker and person. And, and then a few years after that, he had a pretty well publicized, uh, conversion to Catholicism. He wrote very movingly about that, I think in the lamp. So a really fascinating, fascinating person. But, uh, since running or, or announcing his candidacy for the Senate in Ohio, he's really had to, or he thinks he's had to, he has, 
um, changed some of his you know, posture, tone, um, and and a lot of folks are trying to figure out how to square the the candidate J.D. Vance with the author and writer J.D. Vance. Yeah, and the um, con- and the person of confessional faith, right? So yeah. I think I think that when we um, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, or we look ourselves in the mirror, and we think about walking out into the world that God so loves and doing so in ways that honor Jesus, when we think about seeking to rise to the highest levels of influence, whatever our particular area of uh, of expertise or um, or work, labor, like we seek those. Um, highest places of influence for one purpose and one purpose only, and that's the advancement of the kingdom of God in this time and in this generation. And so um, a person who is literally seeking a higher office or a high office, in my view as a Christian, ought only be doing that in order to advance the kingdom purposes of God in this generation. And so then when I evaluate how that person is approaching um, that uh, um, campaign, like I'm evaluating, like, does that look Jesus-y to me? Is that the way, if Jesus were running for this office, is this the way he would be doing it? Um, are these the policies that, you know, uh, uh, that a Christian, a kingdom person should be advocating? I think that's part of the challenge we face in evaluating every candidate today. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think there is such a tendency to think that the ends justify the means and that if you have good, you know, you want to do good things in office, then it's worthwhile running a campaign that is, you know, dirty or um, just kind of panders to the the voting base that you think you have to pander to. Um, and, and that's unfortunate because the, uh, the ends, you know, the, the Christians think that the means matter and that we have to to, um, as you say, uh, pursue our ends in a Christ-like manner and not just um, think that the ends justify the means. All right, so um, this question was not uh, on the list of things that I suggested we might talk about today, but I found your latest piece um, uh, on reflecting on Pretend It's a City um, by Fran Leibowitz. Um, So I read this at frontporchrepublic.com. Pretend it's a book. Um, to just give people the give people the synopsis of this because this is such a good perspective. Yeah, so this is written by Elizabeth Stice, and she's a professor down at a, a Christian college in Florida, and she has experienced what I think a lot of professors and college students and um, high school teachers and high school students have experienced, which is this push from. Uh, administrators and uh, textbook publishers toward digital books. And the promise is, hey, it's cheaper. We don't have to print all these things. Uh, it's more convenient. It's on all your devices. You can have, you know, it's all, it can be hyperlinked. It's so much better. And the reality, for at least for so many of us uh, in, in the classroom, is that eh, it's not a great replacement always, right? That there are, you know, pro- there's all the problems with, that, that people talk about with, you know, screens and distractions, and I could be reading my textbook now, or I could be browsing the web. But what Elizabeth focuses on, and I think she's right to do so, is that even the very economics don't always work out, and that oftentimes we end up paying a lot to have access to these things, but we just kind of rent them for the semester, and um, then they disappear afterwards, 
And, you know, if you bought the textbook used, you could always sell it back used at about the same price. Um, or if you wanted to, and this is what I always tell my students, right? You could keep it and benefit from it for the rest of your life. Um, and, uh, and yet now students oftentimes are forced to, to kind of access digital books at a pretty hefty subscription price. Uh, and then once they, they graduate or they leave that class, their subscription runs out and they have nothing left. And so I think, uh, you know, sometimes in some cases, digital books can be great, but we shouldn't pretend that they're the same or that they're always going to be cheaper. Um, and, you know, we should we should uh, examine the claims of these uh, digital salespeople with a bit more uh, honesty, I think, and, and try to run the numbers and see if this is really a good deal for students or if it's just uh, the latest cost-cutting measure that actually doesn't save money for, for our students. Yeah, and doesn't help you build a library. Because as you exactly. say, you're, you're right. just renting access to whatever it is that the professor um, is hot on at the minute, and, um, and that may be an ebook. Um, so anyway, there's a conversation that you may not have had with a college student. Um, you may be wondering what, what costs so much in college today. The cost of an ebook has actually risen 23% year over year. Um, for college students and is an increasing part of what's on the assigned syllabus, uh, the required right. syllabus. And your professor knows whether or not you bought it because um, they get a digital record uh, of that as well. So super and, and you can tell whether or not students have read it right? or at least turn the pages, I guess. Wow. Wow. So, well, now, see, yeah. there's a little micro there's a little micro industry for you. I could just sit and flip pages in a book for a kid. Oh, no, that's a bad idea. That's right. OK. That's a bad idea. All right, Jeff Bilbro <laughs> from Grove City College. Thank you, as always, for joining us. You guys can catch up with him at frontporchrepublic.com. You should be reading The Water Dipper. We'll be right back. Sometimes we hear the alarm go off so many times that we just ignore it. I'm not talking about the alarm maybe that wakes you up in the morning, but I'm talking about the fire alarm in the hallway. Um, apparently... One of the primary reasons that so many people fail to get out of the uh, the apartment building in New York, which resulted in the smoke inhalation deaths of nearly two dozen people, including eight children. Um, a huge part of that story is people had just learned to ignore the fire alarm. Let's not ignore. Um, let's not ignore God. Let's not ignore um the concerns that we have about the culture. Let's not ignore the ways in which God seeks to get our attention day in and day out. Because the, the more we ignore it, the more you ignore the little signs, um, the, the more accustomed you become, the harder your heart becomes, the more set your neck becomes, the, um, the more, you know, like sort of stiffened your brow against the things of God. So let's not do that. Let's be people who respond immediately every time when, um, when God pricks our conscience, when God illuminates uh, a reality around us that we know is not righteous, like let's not be people who just learn to look away and listen to the alarm go off in the culture around us. Let's, let's not do that. Um, all right, Ruth Kramer is going to join us next from Mission Network News. She's going to be sharing with us, you know, ways in which Christians around the world are responding to the alarms being raised um, in countries far and wide. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. 
Can you guess what your teens want more than anything? It's not a new car, more money, or a new cell phone. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. You know what your teen wants? It's control. When it comes to making choices in their lives, teens want three things. They want to make their own decisions, they want to control their destiny, and they want opportunities to prove their maturity. Don't you want the same? Of course you do. No parent wants to babysit their teen when they leave home, so help them gain control in healthy ways. When a child is 12, give them more decisions to make each year. When they reach 18, they'll be making decisions on their own. Mom and Dad, you must start transferring control early so kids get practice in making good decisions. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. To boldly go where no one has gone before. Ruth Kramer is back from Mission Network News. You can find what we're talking about today at missionnews.org. Ruth, welcome back and Happy New Year. Welcome. Uh, thank you and, and Happy New Year to you, too. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So bring us up to date on uh, the crisis in Lebanon. You know, when I was interviewing our partner in Lebanon, I said, one day when I say what's going on in Lebanon, you're going to say, hey, everything's hunky-dory. <laughs> but today is not that day. Um, you know, it's 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 an ongoing situation. And uh, yeah, I really feel for our friends in Lebanon because they are just exhausted with crisis after crisis after crisis. Um, coming into the new year, we're not that far into it. And already the Lebanese pound has lost an additional 15 percent of its value. Uh, to put that in perspective, you're talking about um, the Lebanese pound trading at 33,000 to the U.S. dollar. And it doesn't buy mm. much. So whatever you can find on the street in terms of uh, food or medicine doesn't go very far. And the average formerly middle-income family is in deep poverty right now. Um, because of those kinds of situations, with the fuel hikes that have gone on recently, uh, it has increased the outrage of the average Lebanese, uh, and that has led to a lot of protests. You may not have been hearing about the protests just because it's been an ongoing situation probably since uh, 2019. Um, but in this case, the protests were over the fuel hikes and the increased uh, expenses of just your everyday kinds of infrastructure, uh, which is electricity. The protesters stormed a substation on Saturday and created a situation where there was a nationwide blackout for part of the weekend. Um, you know, this is something where uh, it's just calling attention to more of the crisis. And the concern is from especially that's uh, been voiced by some of our partners is that this is Hezbollah setting the stage to take over the parliament uh, in the March elections. So there's parliament elections, uh, I think March 27th this year. And Hezbollah has been undermining the government uh, to kind of position itself so that when elections come, the Lebanese will be so desperate for change, they'll take anybody on the ballot. And Hezbollah wants to basically populate the ballot with their candidates so that uh, they will succeed in taking over parliament and basically be successful in creating a parallel state in the country. Parallel state means Iran. Um, and the Lebanese are very concerned about 
that kind of influence there. Um, they don't want to go back to a situation where um, they're going to be dealing with that kind of politic. Um, there is a lot of concern about what could happen on the other side, what could happen to religious freedom on the other side because of the the belief system that comes with Hezbollah and uh, being a parallel state of Iran. So they're asking us to be praying. Um, first and foremost, when when we talk to our partners and they tell us all these problems, we say, well, what can we do? There's not a lot we can do as a single person to fix the situation. How can we walk alongside you as the body of Christ? And they say, be praying. Be praying for wisdom. Be praying for God's provision. Uh, and, and I want to remind you that back in 2018, when, when these uprisings first started uh, as you know uh, peaceful protests, you remember when, when we were talking about um, prayer tents that were popping up in the middle of the crowds and the squares and things like that, where people were coming for prayer and, and um, we were hearing from our partnering ministries that uh, they were praying for God to shake Lebanon. Uh, I don't think they, on this side of it, they're saying God is answering prayer. I don't think they knew what they were asking for at that time. But um, God is shaking Lebanon, and he's creating the ground for revival. So on the one hand, you've got this desperate political situation. On the other hand, you've got God moving uh, in an area where uh, the church had sort of fallen asleep. There, there were people who were active in ministry because you were able to be free in your expression of uh, the Great Commission. Um, but at the same time, there were a lot of people who were marginally Christian. And the, the ministries that have been active in the crisis um, are telling us now, they think that this is a, uh, the beginning of a revitalization of the body of Christ. So be praying for that to continue because people in desperate situations and in crisis are looking desperately for hope, for something that makes sense, that is um, not political, um, and that gives them the reassurance of peace uh, of, of someone who is in greater control. So that's where we are with Lebanon. Um, in, in this day and age, you know, maybe the next time we talk to them, they'll say everything is great, but they're, they may be meaning that the body of Christ is awake and alive. Yeah, there's definitely people listening who are thinking to themselves, hey, I remember you know, the Lebanese Civil War from 1975 to 1990. So we're talking about 30 years of peace in a country um, very, very familiar with war um, and a, a place where um, peace has provided for religious freedom um, in in Lebanon in ways that simply do not exist in, in other parts of the Middle East. And so our prayers for this uh, this nation and its people continue, and certainly our brothers and sisters in Christ who live there. Let's um, let's pivot just uh, just barely right from Lebanon to Yemen. Tell us what's happening um, uh, briefly in Yemen, and then we'll let people read more about it at uh, at missionnews.org. Well, Yemen has been kind of the underreported crisis. Um, this is a situation where there are multiple militias, multiple armies that are fighting for control of this very, very small country. And uh, it's a situation where the the fighting has basically torn the country apart. There is no infrastructure. It is one of the poorest countries in the Middle East bloc. And with that, with warfare and things like that and a displaced population, you've got uh, starvation, massive mm -hmm. humanitarian crisis. You've got, you know, uh, a health crises. For a while, it was a cholera crisis and nobody knew about that. Uh, for a while, it was a COVID crisis and nobody knew about that. 
And the country has been on the brink of starvation for so long. I think that people uh, just kind of assume that it's just a, an ongoing situation there. Um, the the shift, though, has been uh, severe. So if you're looking at 2019, uh, according to United Nations, uh, Yemeni child under the age of five died every 12 minutes because of the conflict. And that is whether it's direct warfare or the uh, the effects of it. Um, right now, that has changed to a Yemeni child under the age of five dying every five minutes. Mm. So it has not improved. Uh, the situation on top of everything else has gotten increasingly more difficult. And because of the, the type of country that it is, the uh, response of the body of Christ has to be a little bit more um, undercover, a little more covert because yeah, nuanced. of mm-hmm. very much so because of the situation where all of the NGOs and all of the ministries were kicked out of the country about 15 years ago. Um, and so they're a, a very small network. They all know each other and they find ways to get involved through uh, humanitarian organizations that are allowed in to come in and meet some of these needs. So when you're talking about despair in every household, it's kind of an overwhelming situation where ministries are trying to figure out how to be the hands and feet of Christ in a moment of desperation and bring in hope and bring in uh, some love in this situation. It doesn't sound like it would do much, but it does an incredible work of um, plowing the ground. If the Holy Spirit is is moving in that direction uh, for this household, these are opportunities for our partnering ministry to get involved. Um, yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's a situation. We're, we're going to have to direct people to missionnews.org for more on what's going on in Yemen. Um, we're, we're all aware of the deteriorating situation in neighboring Afghanistan as well as uh, tens of billions of people now face starvation in that country, um, in that country as well. Ruth, you and I are going to continue our conversation in just a moment. We're going to pivot to other parts of the world. We are talking with Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News. You can find the articles that we're talking about at missionnews.org. We'll be right back. All right, many of us are aware of uh, the ministry of Mother Teresa. We're also aware that the Modi government in India um, had changed the status, denied the status to nearly 6,000 non-governmental organizations, Mother Teresa's ministry among them. Now, I will say that in in that particular case, um, that status has been restored, but not for thousands of others. So, Ruth, what's going on in India um, and what's the status of, um, uh, you know, this key status, which enables ministries to actually get money from overseas? Well, it's uh, an FCRA registration. It stands for Foreign Contributions Regulation Act. And basically it is uh, the, the, the determiner of how every organization receives from funds from outside of India. So all of these NGOs have to be registered under this act and uh, submit all the paperwork and make sure everything's in order. And there's a committee that reviews all the stuff and then decides whether or not they're going to uh, renew the uh, – uh, I don't know, license the mm-hmm. particular registration. Um, in this case, with missionaries of charity, um, I'm not really sure how it was that they were denied registration. There was uh, an indication that um, 
someone had complained about something that they were doing because there was a, a comment on uh, adverse inputs uh, mm -hmm. that led to the committee's decision to reject missionaries of charity. Uh, international um, furor, I will say, is probably what led to the uh, committee re reversing its decision and then restoring the registration through 2026. That's not the case for a lot of other organizations. Our partner is Bibles for the World in India, and they had uh, their team on top of this months in advance. So this wasn't really a surprise for organizations. It wasn't like, ta-da, January 1st, oh no, I didn't know, didn't know that this was going to expire. Um, all of these organizations had advance notice and they were all submitting paperwork trying to get in there um, before the deadlines. Uh, Bibles for the World got their stuff submitted ahead of time and they were re-registered. So they are not among the organizations uh, who were cut out, but there's going to be a lot of scrambling for a lot of ministries. The thing that's really interesting here is that 2% of the refusals were Hindu organizations, 3 to 4% were Muslim organizations, and the bulk of the rest were Christian or Catholic organizations. So you, you can't really out, out, you know, outright say this was a discriminatory act, but based on what you're seeing here with the percentages of those organizations who were rejected, it sort of looks like that. Um, so I think what we can do is continue to pray for ministries who are uh, trying to make sure that their ducks are in a row. For those who got in, uh, we can thank the Lord that their teams were organized and that they will continue to be able to do work there. Um, but there's going to be a lot of pivoting for other organizations. Some of some of them are major organizations. But this this FCRA thing is really what caused the beginning of the domino uh, effect to get Compassion International removed from India. So mm -hmm. this is something that is a really severe situation that we need to be praying about. Yeah, that was what came to mind um, when I read this was right or be or was reminded of this was that it's just a couple of years ago that we were talking about Compassion International having to withdraw its operations from India um, and child sponsorship uh, changing, you know, radically um, in terms of, you know, the second most populous nation in the entire world, on the entire planet. We're talking about billions of people um, and millions of kids who have uh, Christian sponsors around the world. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a huge story and one that uh, I know you'll continue to follow and we'll continue to talk about. Um, I'm, I am wondering, Ruth, if we can touch on the story that uh, that I'm reading at missionnews.org about Mission Aviation Fellowship. Um, mm -hmm. I understand that, you know, although they're going to continue to operate um, in the DRC, they've had to move their base due to fighting. I think this story illuminates the challenges that Christians, um, you know, seeking to do ministry in very hard places. Uh, this is just it's a good, I think, picture of how an organization on the um, on the ground often has to pivot. Yeah. Well, uh, MAF has been operating in uh, the DRC since uh, since it was Zaire. So that's a lot of years, uh, I think 1960s. Um, and so they have had time to build in uh, and, and uh, fortify some of their uh, infrastructure there. But recent violence in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo basically had escalated to the point where they had to close a base in uh, Neonkunde. And um, this is an area where you've got like eight militia groups that are fighting uh, alongside, well, not alongside, but against 
each other and the ISIS-affiliated allied democratic forces. So you've had massive amounts of human rights abuses and massacres all occurring in this area. And uh, earlier this year, um, there was uh, a number of attacks that kind of led to the, the big attack uh, recently in Neon Kunde, which actually trapped some of the MAF missionaries in their compound while they were, you know, they were kind of pinned down on the floor while the bullets and the mortars were flying on around them. And as soon as things settled down for just a minute, like the, the brief pause uh, in the storm, they got out and they had to abandon their bases. A lot of their staff in Neon Kunde lost their homes because the soldiers had taken or the militia had taken them over and then wouldn't allow them back in. So most of the people who had homes in that village lost everything they owned and they are now starting over again in Bunya. Um, MAF still has a presence because they do have that base in Bunya, um, but that is, is an area where you've got a massive refugee crisis. So you've had people who've been fleeing fighting all over the place, and they're all winding up in Bunya. So you have got like a hundred thousand uh, internally displaced people in this area, and the big NGOs are still assessing the situation and trying to organize. So there's not a lot enough food. There's really not enough. Uh, uh, shelter in the area. And now you've got uh, MAF trying to relocate their base and get resettled and get reorganized. So the thing there that is obvious that we can pray about is ask God to restore peace in, in this area. Um, uh, that's the, the big request. Uh, at the hmm. same time, this is an opportunity because Bunya is allowing MAF to uh, operate even more efficiently and getting people in and out of areas that are, are very uh, difficult, where in Neon Kunde, you kind of had to watch what was going on with the militias and the fighting and things like that. So this is kind of a, mm. I don't want to say blessing in disguise, but it is. Keep on praying for this team, their mm. uh, boldness, and uh, ask God to protect them. Yeah, and others in long-term ministry. They've been, they've been in the DRC for 60 years. All right, um, Ruth, as always, thank you so much. There's so much more to read and catch up on at missionnews.org. We'll be right back. All right. We um, we talked yesterday with Scott Todd from One Child about children in extreme poverty around the world and how we can partner with them. I just uh, wanted to clarify, um, One Child is absolutely operational in India. Um, and if you want to sponsor a child, you can join us today at MyFaithRadio.com. Just look for the support One Child. You can you can change the world when you change the life of one child. Um, all right, we have another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.